but you tell a guy, hey, like you're you're not good enough this way. Well, then they just shift their identity completely as opposed to trying to improve something within that. So transparency, whether that's, again, command stuff, velocity, whatever it might be, um, whatever, whatever your kind of weakest link is, address it, but, but definitely run with your strengths. Welcome into another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball. Hope you're doing well wherever you're at listening to this. I've had a busy last few weeks. I've been traveling a little bit, been watching a lot of games. This past weekend, I was actually at the University of Kentucky watching them play Tennessee in softball. So that was my my first ever SEC softball game, which is really cool. It was a great environment. It was pretty much sold out. So that was a ton of fun. And I've been watching a lot of local high school games in the Cincinnati, Ohio area with just some players that, that I've been working with. So been very busy, but excited to to get back on the mic and and share another episode with you this week so this week we have tyler zombro so tyler is a a pitcher and he's a coach too so it's it he's a unique guy and he's a very smart guy so he was a pitcher he he is a pitcher he recently just got released from the tampa bay rays organization um, but he was their minor league reliever of the year in 2019. Uh, he's someone who, who really knows how to pitch. His velocity was just down a little bit. And so he just recently got released, but he'll probably get picked up again pretty soon. The reason why I wanted to have him on, though, is is not solely just because he's a pitcher, but he's also a full-time coach at Tread Athletics. And I don't know if anybody remembers, but we had on someone named Ben Brewster uh, maybe a year or two ago now, and he founded a, a company called Tread Athletics. He's the co-founder, and they train pitchers remotely across the country. And they work with big leaguers, college pitchers. So it's all it's all pitching based. They do some training in house too. And so Tyler is full time with them as well, even even during season. So he's training pitchers remotely while also pitching professionally. So he's a very busy guy. As I said, he's a very smart guy. He graduated first in his class at George Mason University, so he's pretty smart. But interesting insight because he's a player and he's also a coach and um, very good at both. So if you're into pitching, you're going to love this episode. I don't know what it's been lately. The last few weeks we've been doing a lot of pitching stuff. We need to get back on the hitting front here soon, but I've been giving, giving some love to pitchers and, and all the pitching coaches out there listening. So we've been getting a, a ton of new uh, subscribers for the Hitting Chronicle, my weekly newsletter. So if you haven't done that, I'd recommend it. It's on hitting development and college recruiting. So this week's this week's uh, newsletter going out on Tuesday is going to be on college recruiting and the new rules that just came out from the NCAA and what they mean for high school players. And then we're also breaking down Jared Kelnick's swing from 2023 to 2022. He made a couple of big swing changes and has dramatically improved his, his numbers and production at the plate. And he's a, he's a, a big time prospect for the Seattle Mariners. So if either of those interest you hitting development or college recruiting, head to patrickjonesbaseball.com, sign up, put your name and email in, you'll be added to the list. Okay, here we go with Tyler Zombro. All right, we now welcome on Tyler Zombro to the podcast. 
Tyler, appreciate you coming on today, man. Yeah, Patrick, thanks for having me. Well, I wish we had you on, um, and you were, you know, in season right now. I know you're back, uh, you know, back in Charlotte working at, at Tread Athletics, which I know you do full-time anyway. But um, take me through kind of, you know, what, what you've been, uh, like, up up to, like, the last few days. I know you're you're now working at Tread in person now. Like, what's a typical day for you like? Yeah, so um, I just got back into the Charlotte area last week. Um, actually, it's it's pretty quiet in gym right now, but a typical day for me, um, depending upon if I'm working out in the morning or afternoon, I'll come in around nine o'clock, do my work-related stuff until three, train afterwards, and then go home. And then obviously, if I'm training in the morning, get that done, work until five or so, and then go home from there. So um, it's a pretty nice, fluid lifestyle structure, I would say. Um, so definitely enjoy that and obviously enables me to get my training in as well. And you mentioned before we started recording, you're in charge of the, the data. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a performance coordinator, which, which means I oversee a pocket of coaches. Um, but then I also oversee our data department here at Tread as well. Uh, and then I'm also a coach. So I do coach about 60 athletes on my own. Um, but yeah, the data department, I'm responsible for the integration of that um, within our clientele base. So with all 2000 athletes, making sure their data needs are met, um, obviously both enabling their development, helping them and recruiting, signing free agent deals, whatever that might look like, um, which is a really fun group to be ahead of. So a lot of, a lot of scattered plots. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, yeah. So track man plots, you know, stuff grades, seeing how guys stack up, obviously relaying that from a developmental standpoint. Also then, um, you know, being able to promote that within their own free agency or recruitment, whatever that might be. Um, but it's, it's really enjoyable to see how, you know, it does affect all 2000 of our athletes. And then of course, internally, um, we have a biomechanics lab coming in. We have power testing. There are other ways that we can utilize data for development, but seeing that integrated full fledged is, is a really fun thing. Tyler, you, you know, you're, you're a professional pitcher. You've, you know, you were reliever of the year for the, in the Tampa Bay Rays organization. And, and now, you know, you're coaching, I think, believe you said you've been coaching full-time at Tread since 2017, which is, which is really cool. What, what's something that you've seen that from a, a data standpoint outside of velocity, like obviously velocity is important, but like what what have you seen like via TrackMan that the best pitchers have that nobody else has? And the only reason I bring that up is I remember like looking through a lot of different uh, TrackMan stuff on pitchers and movement plots and and tr- trying to see like the differences between like the best of the best pitchers and everybody else. And there's definitely a, a difference in the velocity, but I'm just curious if there's anything that you've seen from uh, a movement standpoint on those on those graphs. Yeah, so I mean, everybody's chasing outlier movement. Everybody wants their four seam to have more carry, their sinker to have more depth, their slider to have more sweep or slider to have more depth, etc. Um, but the the real the real success is is really found when you optimize a guy's arsenal relative to how he moves well. So matching motor preferences to their slot, building out their arsenal, being slot dependent, uh, and, and honestly, at the end of the day. Um, it comes down to execution. Like I have plenty of big league guys who you look at their track man plot and you might not say they're very good. Um, however, they execute well, the usages are correct. 
Um, and that really makes things tick up from there, which is why we often utilize uh, Execution Plus, which is a, a model based off of VLO movement, obviously factoring in release heights, approach angles, et cetera, but heavily dependent upon where the pitch is thrown. So um, really it's blending all of those things. You've got to know when a guy has too wide of an outlier pitch mix that he needs to hone it in, or if things are a little tight and he needs to create more separation. So um, really finding that balance. And then, of, of course, like I mentioned there, the execution side, that's execution is undoubtedly the biggest thing we see between all of our big league clients in relation to high end college guys or minor league guys. How do you teach execution? Uh, there's a lot of variables there um, from a command focus. I think it's uh, and we have a few command apps that we utilize with this, but it's understanding where your miss is. Um, and then filtering off of that. So like if my standard miss with a sweeper is six inches glove side, how do I, how do I thus um, kind of adjust my sights to factor that into where I want to throw these pitches? Um, if my four seam has natural cut to it, can I utilize tunneling that to like a glove side third? If I'm a seam shift guy throwing a four seam and a sinker off the same axis, same efficiency, can I start both of those pitches middle and then just let them do what they do? Um, so there, there's a lot that goes into that, but from an execution standpoint, it's, it's more so of understanding what your stuff is, how it moves, why you need to throw it in certain places, um, and then giving them like a general focus of how to attack on that. How do you help guys with the mental side of the game when it comes like on the mound? Like may, maybe a better question is like, what's your mindset when you're personally pitching? Yeah, honestly, when I'm, when I'm pitching, I'm, I'm running a numbers game in my mind i'm running you know ground ball probability i'm looking at the guy's swing path to see is it a negative swing is it an uphill swing if it is then what kind of arsenal am i trying to utilize with this guy um, so for me being a sinker slider guy it's like if i know the guy is an uphill swinger um, odds are he can get on plane with a sinker but the slider is probably a better option here um, if a guy has a negative swing then obviously i'm going to enable him to hit the ball on the ground uh, and feed off of the sinker but i'm I'm trying to look at a hitter's swing decisions, know if he chases, know what the attack angle is generally with him, uh, and then really use my arsenal around that. Are you throwing every pitch as hard as you can? Uh, depends. Depends. Uh, I will say never never below like 95% threshold, just because that, that kind of impacts a little bit of kinesthetic awareness from my standpoint at least, where at like 95% I'm commanding the ball very, very well. What do you specifically need to do in order to get to the big leagues? Uh, throw harder. Throw harder. <laughs> um, yeah, as as kind of broad in general as that is, um, that's that's probably the truth. Is that what you've been told? Uh, oh, well, you know, people don't want to just come out and say that, but no, yes, you, I mean that's that's essentially um, kind of got to be it. I mean, my my career numbers are pretty good, um, so. You know, there's there's a reason I'm probably a free agent right now, um, and it's and it's not from on-field success. Well, yeah, you went up. I mean, you went up all the way to Triple A, and like you said, like I said before, you were reliever of the year. Um, what what's your max? I think it'd be interesting for people to to hear. Like, what's your uh, numbers like from your fastball velocity, and like like what's not hard enough? Yeah, yeah. So I'm a I'm a sinker guy from a very low three quarter, essentially near submarine slot. Um, my career fastball average velo has been about 89. Um, peak end on that's 92. 
Um, so traditionally I'm, I'm in that upper eighties echelon with about zero inches of vert. So really good depth on the sinker. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's not quite, quite enough to be, uh, you know, really attractive to teams right now. Mm. What's, what are you doing to help increase that velocity? Cause I'm sure it is, you know, you've been, you know, you're, you're at the forefront, you're a very progressive guy, smart guy. Like, are you just constantly trying new things and, and just looking for something to click? No, it's, it's more so for me of, of transitioning to like nervous system type stuff. So whether that's lifting um, different plyometrics, um, that's a big thing for me, just physically, of course, also coming off of a brain surgery in 21 and then, you know, having thoracic outlet and rehabbing that in 22. Um, really, it's it's just making sure my body's in a, a good state to feel good. Um, obviously, when you overcome injuries, there's a big window of like getting back to performance and then developing yourself from that. Um, which, as I as I kind of mentioned to you, uh, I only had two outings against outside opponents in spring training, and my velocity was certainly trending in the right direction. Um, so, like, I'm still honestly in a bit of that transitional period where things were progressing very well. Um, so just going to continue that here, uh, which thankfully we have a really nice setup to be able to throw live. And obviously I'm able to get my work in as well. Yeah. I, I remember, um, I remember the, the, actually the day when, when you got hit, cause that was, I believe it was, it was Brett Cumberland. So as you guys were playing the Orioles, I was coaching in the Orioles organization at the time. So I do remember that. I mean, that, that crazy stuff, man. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, do you remember anything about that? day in general no no i've got i've got about five days of of no recollection so i'm i'm completely in the dark wow man <clears throat> and so you have to wear a a some a some sort of like protective helmet inside your hat now yeah i've got i've got a little insert i wear um it's basically like a like a scully with padding underneath it um that i wear under my hat every time okay it did now does that feel weird are you surprised more pitchers don't wear that um, a lot of pitchers have been adapting to uh, just having a singular plate on their dominant side. So obviously the side that you throw with is going to be exposed a bit and follow through. Um, but a lot of guys have been using the singular plate. Uh, for me, yeah, it feels weird because mine's a little heavy. It's about 14 ounces. Um, so you have to get used to the weight distribution of it. But other than that, you get used to it pretty quickly. How long did it take you to, to just get back to throwing again after that incident? Um, well, I started, I started throwing honestly in like a therapeutic realm, probably, uh, probably three months after the injury, three to four months. Um, but obviously the first couple months were much different rehab. So OT, speech therapy, PT. Um, so doing a ton of neuro training was really the, you know, main objective there. I wasn't really concerned with anything physical. Uh, and I didn't really get cleared to do anything high effort physically until about November, December of that year in terms of like building head pressure, increasing tension, things of that nature. So, um, but I did, I did start playing catch at like a moderate effort uh, a few months after there. That's crazy, man. And then uh, you just, you've had some bad luck. I mean, you had that happen. And then this past year you had um, another surgery. What was, what'd you have this past year? I had thoracic outlet. So what, what, what exactly is that? Um, so thoracic outlet, uh, it's where your, your brachial plexus is compressed. So basically the nerves and arteries, veins that run through um, this little triangle of space between your pec minor, your first rib, um, scalenes are a big part of that as well. 
if you have any compression within that, um, whether it's uh, more vascular related, so blood flow through your arm, or if it is nerve related, so you're having nerve sensations in your hand, um, there's, there are different ways that it can present. Um, so for me, it was actually very straightforward uh, when I went to go see Dr. Pearl in Texas. Uh, when they did an ultrasound, they found that my scalenes had a lot of scar tissue, which is likely from the head injury. So I was in a neck brace for a while in the hospital. I, you know, I didn't move my neck very much as you would anticipate. Like if you have a stiff neck, you're like turning, you know, like Dr. Evil spinning around. Um, <laughs> and so that was, that was me for a while, um, which then my scalings had scar tissue, which compressed um, arteries, nerves, and in this space here in my scaling. So instead of just doing a scalenectomy, went ahead and did the full TOS procedure. Um, and here we are. Wow. So you, th- that was a, you had that happen because of having the brain surgery. Yes, likely, likely so. Wow. And so did you have the, <laughs> where you you said you're tingling in your hands and stuff like what, how did you know <laughs> something was off? Um, well, my velo was way down, uh, which again could also be from, surgery and not being able to do much physically. Um, when I went to spring training that year, uh, my first couple outings were pretty good. Uh, but I was like 85, 86, a couple 84s. Um, and I'll never forget, uh, our farm director came up to me about, about an hour before rosters were listed. So, and my VLO in spring training has always been a little low. I build throughout the year. Um, <clears throat> you know, like June is like typically a time where I'm peaking, as you see with a lot of arms, they kind of build up. Um, and so our farm director came up to me about an hour before rosters were posted and like, Hey, you're not, you're not breaking to Durham. You're going to stay back and extended. Um, so I'm like, well, crap. Okay. Because I thought I was in a reasonable place. If I'm like 85, 86, 87, it's like, I'm confident I'll be 88 to 90 pretty quick. Um, stayed back and extended was obviously trying to throw harder and harder. I think also increasing a lot of that tension um, led to a lot of the thoracic outlet symptoms being expedited. So I would throw, uh, hand would start to go cold, numb, um, and then also the velo just started to drop. So I'm throwing bullpens on like 81. Um, arm feels terrible. But again, I'm trying to push through this because I'm, I'm basically being told I'm not breaking because of my velocity. I mean, it really just made the scenario worse. And then I was like, all right, well, clearly we need to do something here. Yeah, I'm sh- I'm sure that's not I mean, what were you 27 at the time? 26, 27? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. saying telling a 27-year-old that you're going to stay an extended probably isn't a, a good good a good feeling. Yeah, and I mean it's uh you know, I I don't get me wrong, I understand the velocity component. Um I understand that it helps stuff grades. I mean, heck, that's a department I'm running here, you know. Right. Um but yeah, I mean more so just like the timing of it all coming off brain surgery. Um, no, I, I know that my VLO is a little bit down. Um, but again, to kind of have that conversation right before rosters break, it's a little difficult. Um, and of course, adds a lot of stress to my plate in terms of trying to push that velocity up to get back in a game because I had pitched in a game since the head injury, which I finally did. And then I, I kind of had to say something about the the symptoms there. And thus I had the surgery. But yeah, never, never ideal. Certainly been a roller coaster of highs and lows uh, the last few years. What's that recovery like from from that syndrome? Uh, it's it's pretty easy. Matter of fact, it's really easy. Um, you can progress to tolerance. Um, nothing structural integrity wise changes in your body. 
Uh, you're just cutting stuff out. Um, and really, that's it. I mean, it's people view it as a really scary thing, but it's not. Um, I actually just had a, a guy in the Washington Post who I spoke with about this. And I think the article's out there because um, I train a guy, Cole Henry, who had thoracic outlet as well. Um, and it's like everybody's just terrified of this injury. But Cole's in spring training right now, 94, 96, one of the Nats top prospects. And everybody was terrified of this surgery. But it's like as long as you get through the rehab, you can be pretty aggressive with it. Make sure throwing patterning stuff doesn't change. You, you can come out on the good side of it. Interesting. Yeah, I had a college teammate who had that too at the time, and um, yeah, it was the first time I'd heard of that. But I've heard of, of multiple guys having it since and coming back really strong. I know uh, you were at George Mason and, and were undrafted out of out of George Mason, and and had some. I mean, your college career, dude, you were a stud pitcher at George Mason. Was it the Vigo thing? Is that why you went undrafted? Likely, likely so. Again. Um, yeah, I mean, Velo was roughly the same in college. Um, good career numbers, just, you know, probably not a lot of upside. Uh, again, I, I threw a ton of innings and certainly loved my time at George Mason. But I think, you know, as far as the transition into pro ball, again, that's that's kind of a lot of a lot of where that uh, blockage in my career comes from. What's the biggest what was the biggest transition? Like what was the, the hardest thing about transitioning from the college game to the pro game? Um, honestly, there, there's not a, a whole lot, just different types of hitters, you know, like pro ball is much more aggressive guys trying to do damage, um, a lot more strikeouts involved on the pro side, whereas college is very much so choke up, put the ball in play, like lots of early contact. I mean, a lot of the guys here at tread, uh, they, they trolled me about, uh, one game in particular that I threw in where my senior year against Fordham, um, I'll never forget it. I was pitching against, uh, I forget Murphy's first name from uh, Fordham, but it was a CG. The game took like an hour and 40 minutes. Uh, I threw, I threw 82 pitches, uh, CG, three hits, one strikeout. Oh it it was like, you know, they're like, oh, it's so embarrassing. Nine innings, no strikeouts. But like, that's how college ball is. You know, guys are just yeah. trying to put in play pro ball again, much different guys know they need to do damage to move up levels. So um, I would say that's the biggest difference overall. Yeah, it feels like you've you've committed a sin if you strike out in college baseball. <laughs> <laughs> that I mean, that sounds right. Yeah, I don't know. So, speaking of of hitters and striking out, you you've been a, a pitcher. You're currently a professional pitcher. You're a coach too. If you could talk to a group of of hitters, knowing what you know about pitching, like what, what would be the advice that you would give hitters? Well, ironically enough, one of my good friends here in Charlotte is the Reds big league hitting coach, Joel McKeithen. Joel McKeithen, um, okay. So Joel, Joel and I talk a lot. <clears throat> um, I mean, I w- you're, do you mean in terms of giving them va- good information or bad information? I guess both. <laughs> uh, <laughs> good, good information, good information. Like you're, you're like for example, like for the day, you know, you and Joel switch spots, and you're you're yeah, now the hitting coach yeah. for the Reds. Yeah. Uh, rule one would be to swing less. Swing less. That would undoubtedly be rule one. Swing less. Um, and then ultimately, I think probably just something again from like the damage side of things. I'm like, I don't, I don't know if hitters quite understand how much pitchers value weak contact. So if you're not going to do damage with something, just don't swing. Uh, in general, like you see chase rates really high uh, in professional baseball. And one of the things you see with, elite level pitchers is like 
they're only in the zone about 50% of the time. Now, obviously, there could be an advantage counts, et cetera, but I think hitters, hitters a lot of times bail pitchers out, um, maybe, maybe thinking that they're at a bit more of a disadvantage than they really are. But swinging less would definitely be 1A on the uh, helpful side. So you just find that hitters at all levels of mm-hmm. professional baseball are just too, too aggressive. Yes, um, for sure. And again, like even if you want to equate that back to college, like swinging at a ball, one ball off and like a one one count because you don't want to strike out. You know, it's like our goal is not to put it in play. Your goal should be to create run value. Um, but, yeah, we've actually looked at a lot of that on the pitching side because we, we need to be ready to adjust to those trends, obviously, as well. And I know uh, our head data analyst, Rylan, ran some numbers, and I believe the only guy, there was like one guy out of, I don't know, like 50 people who improved their WRC or OPS or something who swung at a higher clip uh, in 2022 than they did 2021. So majority of hitters who are are trending well and improving are actually swinging a bit less. Mm, interesting. I, I definitely believe that. Now, what would you tell a group of, of pitchers at professional level if you're coaching a team? I know it's a little bit different, private sector versus in a team, but you obviously are a professional pitcher. So what would be something that you would tell if you were a pitching coach in uh, professional baseball? Um, I, I would be as transparent as possible on that front. Um, I think that is one thing that's not good about professional baseball is there is a lot of um, ambiguity, confusion, not a lot of direct relationships and transparency in terms of evaluating. Is your stuff good enough? Uh, Are you performing well? Is your command underwhelming? And then really just putting tangible goals with those plans. You know, I think pitchers get lost in what they're trying to improve within their own identity. Um, And I think that's a big part is then, you know, once you tell a guy, hey, like you're you're not good enough this way. Well, then they just shift their identity completely as opposed to trying to improve something within that. So transparency, whether that's, again, command stuff, velocity, whatever it might be, um, whatever, whatever your kind of weakest link is, address it. But but definitely run with your strengths. Why do you think that that's such a the transparency issue is such a thing in professional baseball? Because I hear that all the time, but it's like, man, why don't somebody actually do something about it? Yeah, I think, I think honestly, people people in professional baseball are just scared to have those conversations. Um, there are definitely groups in professional baseball and organizations who are better than that at others. Um, but but it seems like everybody's like, oh, I don't want to step on this guy's toes or piss him off, whatever that might be, but. For whatever reason, there is a huge lack of transparency. Hmm, interesting. So I, I find that your job and, and just what you're doing is is really interesting. How you're able to to be a professional baseball pitcher while also working full time at Tread Athletics and training pitchers and things like that. I mean, do you ever get burnt out of pitching? No, not really. Um, <laughs> it's I, I view it as just like a, it's a massive problem solving tool to help each guy maximize their career. Um, and that doesn't always have to do with pitching, right? Like it can be a part of the mental component, um, could be something strength related, anatomy related, mobility related, injury histories, whatever that might be. So you're problem solving a whole piece. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, yeah, it's something where I'm, I'm always looking at every realm of development, not just pitching specifically. So and, and I don't I don't lose a lot of energy when I'm thinking about others. If you start thinking about yourself a lot, you'll you'll burn out quick. Mm, I gotcha. 
what's what's it like at Trev? Like, what's the process like? I think that you guys have have just taking remote training in, in the baseball world to a new level, really in any sport. Now that I think about it, and it's been pretty cool to see how the the trajectory of of the company and and everything how it's just continued to to grow over the last several years since the last time I had uh, Brewster on the podcast, but. What's it like for those who don't know about Tread Athletics? Yeah, it's it's um it's a unique thing because we cover every aspect of development, um, and that's something that all of our coaches take great pride in. And and I don't think you see that many places. Um, you know, I actually was just on a call this morning to a potential applicant. It's like you got to be an AT, you got to be a PT, you got to be a strength and conditioning coach, you got to be an analyst, you got to be a pitching coach. Uh, and you you got to be able to do all these things at a really high level. Um, and I think all of our coaches take such great pride in problem solving all pieces of that development, whether that's internal knowledge, utilizing something uh, within the company of somebody who might have expertise in said area. Uh, it's just it's a really cool atmosphere to be a part of because we we have a lot of the best minds in the industry. And it's not saying that everybody has great SNC knowledge or great data knowledge or general biomechanical knowledge, whatever it is, but we can piece it together because we have all the brains in the same building. And so someone reaches out to you or to, to um, the company and says like, Hey, like I want to be better at pitching. I want to, you know, I'm a high school kid, college kid, like whoever. And then you, there's an assessment process, I assume, but it's not in person per se. It's just via video. And then you guys just collaborate on putting together a plan. Yeah. So it's, um, they submit roughly 50, 60 assessment videos. You'll go through the assessment process. 50 to 60. <clears throat> yeah. It's, it's pretty lengthy. Wow. Um, and yeah, so then you're you're doing that. You're looking at strength history, obviously height, weight, body composition. Um, looking at SNC background stuff. How strong are they? Um, what do they move like? And then throwing wise, doing a throwing uh, mechanical analysis, just seeing what type of plyo drills they need. Okay, well, how are these patterns affected in the weight room? How do we need to tailor A to Z soft tissue correctives, mobility, pre-throw, throwing program, post-throw strength work, conditioning work, all that's got to be tailored around how they move, how they throw. So <clears throat> that's uh, that's the all-encompassing package. Hmm. How many times when you are working with guys where it's like, man, they're doing everything right, they're they're doing well, they're throwing well, but in, in the game, like, everything changes. And, like, when that does happen, like, how do you help those those pitchers? Because I assume, and, again, I'm not a pitcher, but – you know, on the hitting side, a big part of it is the mental side. And I don't know. I mean, I assume pitching is probably pretty similar. And so how are you able to help those guys when, when they have that, those troubles out on the mound and they don't in the practice setting? Yeah. Um, honestly, I'm lucky. Most, most of my guys are pretty good. Um, but it's, it's a lot of getting back to the roots, the anchors of what you do really well. I think guys get caught up in like, I'm trying to stay in my heel more. Okay, well, I want a better glute load, whatever whatever these things are, especially really buzzy terms. Um, and so, like, for instance, I've actually got a guy right now, a very successful big league reliever, um, who's like, oh, I need to stay in my heel, stay in my heel. Well, his velo's down, like, two to three. Mm. Okay, well, turns out this overemphasis of staying in your heel has decreased your tempo by three frames. So now your tempo's off. So let's get back to the core principles, tempo, rhythm, timing, intent. 
um, things of that nature. So being able to keep it simple when they start to go down these rabbit holes if something is wrong, but ultimately, you know, highlighting a guy's strengths are the the best tool in the world. Um, telling a guy what he's good at, why he will succeed with said things, that carries more weight than anything in the world. I, honestly, that's what Tampa Bay is really good at. Um, you don't focus so much on the negatives. Uh, you focus on the positives. Uh, and you allow guys to really build confidence and trust in what they have. Mm, I like that. I like that. What's the youngest player you work with? Um, for myself, I don't probably 22. 22. So, okay. So is this, do you guys work with high school players too then, or is it just college? We do. We do. We do. do. I just don't, I don't have any myself. Um, I think we're ages 15 and 14, 15 and up right now. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, I do like the the component. I think from a pitching standpoint, it's it's a lot easier to do the remote training than it is maybe from a a hitting standpoint. I've done some remote stuff in the past, and man, it's just it's just really hard to to do it on the on the hitting front. Um, What what's something as a coach that you're you want to improve upon yourself? Uh, Definitely some mental stuff for sure. Like I want to know what guys are more cerebral, which guys can take on a lot of information, which guys can't. Um, I tend to be very externally focused myself. So I want to know, like, do I need to hammer this guy with more external based stuff or can he actually sit, think on some things, digest it? Um, so I, I want to, you know, dive deeper and deeper in that. Um, but other than that, you know, I've got a great group, uh, here in Charlotte, whether that's again, people internally, um, like Ben, Ben's obviously great anatomy, physiology, injury history, which he has a lot of himself, um, but, uh, we have a great PT as well, Nevin Markle, who's a great mentor in terms of looking at fascial links within the body. So, and I think that's really my sweet spot is, is taking ball flight data to biomechanics to anatomy and physiology, and then embedding that in somebody's program. So you understand how all those things relate. Uh, you can ultimately build a, a really cool plan to help somebody succeed. What would a typical plan be like, or what would an example of, of some sort of plan that you put together while knowing all that information? Yeah. So like uh, we'll use Pete Fairbanks as an example. So uh, Pete Fairbanks has top five stuff in major league baseball, undoubtedly. Right. So uh, Pete, Pete doesn't need much help in terms of developing nastier stuff. Um, however, he has had two to three lat issues now throughout his career. So um for instance, like we'll speak with Nevin about this, do a full body eval with Pete. Uh, Pete's also had two left leg hamstring strains. So you start looking at the at the body through this fascial lens. Uh, Pete also throws from a high slot, which requires more lateral tilt of the spine. The lat is very much so elongated at ball release. And you look through these networks. Um, so again, Pete's left hamstring has had issues. His lat, which the posterior fascia line, those two things are certainly involved. Uh, he p- presented a ton of tightness uh, restriction at his TL junction. Um, so your lat has an origin down by the TL junction. So you do a lot of stuff to help him kind of elongate um, through that TL space when the lat does need to elongate and that left hamstring is active because that puts tension on the network. And so you build out a plan saying, okay, we know he gets to these unique positions. Um, what do we need to do to help the left hamstring be better in these areas as the hip goes into IR? How do we make the lat able to respond to that elongation? Because it's not just strength. Obviously, that is a completely different ballgame um, as you're looking through a little bit of like that eccentric portion. 
So then how do we give him adequate soft tissue correctives? How much do we strengthen it? How much do we mobilize it? What plyo drills can we do to overemphasize it? How can we get him patterning a bit better if he is making any slight adjustments? Um, and that's, that's all something you're putting together. But, and again, this is all related back to ball flight. So you would be saying like, if, well, Pete can't get to this slot, then his data is going to change. He's not going to be as successful because this stuff would, would definitely go downhill a little bit. So putting those pieces together for me is, is really fun. How long does that, does that process take if you putting all that together and then putting a plan together and then giving it to the pitcher? Um, well, I would say it's never ending. Honestly, that's like, that's one of the really cool things about it too, right? Is, and especially guys who've gone through injury history and you're trying to get them back to moving a certain way. It's, it's constant communication. It's, you know, how do you feel with this? Do you respond? Well, um, does this lifting feel good? Does it not? Um, are we seeing the marked improvements that we want to see? And and that's, that's ongoing. You know, I think, yes. And to short answer this, yeah, we'll take the initial, like, like for, for that example of like a big league athlete that we're doing that with, that's, that's a full day of being together. Uh, and that's taken another couple hours at home to really map things out. Um, but it doesn't stop there. Like it's constant regulation modifying, uh, so, you know, building it out, even just on the personal end, like a few hours, but you're also spending three, four hours on the front end there, problem solving a lot of that. Do you guys work with the big league pitching coaches of all these teams too? Uh, yes and no. Uh, some of them reach out and want to be uh, really involved in the process, which is great. Uh, thankfully, we have a few organizations who are like that. Uh, and then there are guys who don't reach out. Um you know, whether they just don't really care from that side or, or whatever that might look like. Um, but I would say, you know, with about half of them, we have really good, really good active relationships. And then sometimes you don't hear from them, but honestly, you, you find somebody in the mix who cares, whether that's like an S and C coach, uh, if a guy's been rehabbing one of the ATs, PTs, et cetera, it's a pitching coordinator. If it's a minor league pitching coach or the big league pitching coach, et cetera, you'll, you'll find somebody within there. It's just, who's like really diving into the trenches with that guy. Mm, yeah. How many guys do you have in professional baseball <clears throat> right now? Um, we probably, we probably have 500 ish. 500 guys. Oh yeah. my goodness. Jeez. Yeah. We have, we have, uh, we have well over a hundred guys with service time. That's, that's awesome, man. How many total athletes do you train? Uh, me personally, sixty. Oh no, I'm, I'm sorry. I meant like the tread athletics in general. Like oh, oh, about about two thousand. that's crazy. That's awesome, man. Man, you guys are you guys are doing some really cool stuff down there. Where where do you see yourself? I mean, do you you know? Obviously, I want you to to pitch in the big leagues for as long as possible. But when that you know when that dream's over, like, do you see yourself? becoming a big league pitching coach like is that something you want to do or do you want to stay on the private side like where what would you want to do um i would want to i would want to be somewhere uh, where i could have optimal impact um and that's something like I've, we've talked a ton about here as well um i look at it uh, like for me you know tread essentially has like 30 professional coordinators here right, is because you're overseeing that pocket of athlete, every single coach, especially guys, and don't get me wrong, like, 
new applicants, new hires who come in, you go through an educational course, you're kind of building your, your resume a bit. We have to see continued success, especially on the pro side, adequate data knowledge. That's super important. Um, and you kind of build up, but our higher end coaches right now, all of them have 50 ish professional athletes. Um, so essentially you're, you're like a pitching coordinator in a way. And the, and the beauty of it is you get to work with all 30 teams. You don't just work with one, um, which is great. It's year round ongoing communication. Um, and it, the environment and culture here is just so different than, than what you would see in a professional organization, you know, as I'm sure you've seen, like, it's like, okay, our sports science is over here. Our S and C staff is over here. Our player development staff's over here. Our front office staff is over here. They're, the ATs are here. Like nothing is overlapped at all, um, which is really unfortunate because it never helps people develop to the maximum, which is why we have so many professional athletes, honestly. Um, and so, you know, seeing that here and seeing the impact we can have, the relationships you can build, you know, I that's what's most important to me is those relationships and maximizing a career. And I don't think there's anywhere else to do it better than here. Yeah. And I think you bring up a good point there and it's the irony is, is I bet if you asked every organization, they probably would all say that they do do a good job of, 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 of combining all those facets, even though they don't. <laughs> well, yeah. And well, no, that's a, that's a good point because um, there's a point where transparency is needed, you know, and like an accountability aspect. And that's one thing here that I love is like, um, you know, Nancy Knoll, who's our director of performance, a really rich S&C background. Um, like if let's say uh, let's say I put some atrocious lift in a big leaguers program um, and it just doesn't make sense, like I'm getting called out on it. Mm. And it's but it's it's an environment here where it's like, hey, I'm going to call you out on this. We're going to have a conversation. You're going to learn from it. You're going to innovate and do it better. But also, I think there's a huge element here, again, kind of like I mentioned, um, like from a data standpoint, that's why our data office doors are always open. I want people to come in and talk to me uh, as opposed to like, you know, an on-field coordinator might be looking at data and not really be certain of something and maybe speak out of context. Um, whereas here, it's like, okay, I'm not going to feel ashamed that I don't know this. I'm going to go ask the guys. And then you're you're just doing things better and you have way more correct information uh, because everybody's being held accountable in in a very like welcoming, learning, growing atmosphere, not belittling. Um, and I think that's that's a huge part. Is it I think I read this online. Maybe it was a few years back that you had to throw 90 miles an hour to coach at Tread. <laughs> no, it's no, it's probably a joke because everybody does. I mean, I'm okay. I'm probably the thrower slower here, to be honest with you. Really? Probably. I mean, we have we have a couple coaches who don't don't have a rich throwing history, but I mean, we've got we've at least got a dozen or two dozen coaches who are 93, 94 plus. Man, that's wild to me. What what's the vision of of the company, like where where do you guys want to go? I mean, you, you have two thousand pitchers right now, five hundred professional baseball. I mean, you're just trying to just continue to scale more and more, or do you want to build other locations for in for training in person? Like, where do you see this thing going? Oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't hold all the reins. You'd have to ask Cohen and Ben about that one. Um, but I mean, I think, I think we're just changing the industry. Um, 
long story short, like that's, that's what I wake up every day and I kind of see is like, I'm, and I'm not, I'm not trying to belittle organizations, but like we have a better impact on athletes, careers and organizations do. Um, and it's because ultimately like we're invested in the player. We're not invested in trying to make our big league team win a world series because we don't have one. We don't have financials that we're worried about in terms of paying players or whatever. We are trying to optimize every single athlete's career. Um, and so, you know, that looks different for the 14 year old versus like a Corey Kluber who's trying to pull out two more years on his career. Um, but that's the thing is we're, we're covering all those stories. Um, and that's what we seek to do is, is to change and rewrite an athlete's story. What are you looking for in the hiring process? Like for a coach who wants to coach at Tread, I assume that you've been in on, in on some of those and obviously you were hired yourself, but what what are you looking for? Like if I came to you, Tower, and I'm like, you know what? I don't like hitting anymore. I want to be a pitching coach. You'd be like, okay, well, can you do X, Y, and Z? Yeah, um, great question because we get that one a lot. Um, again, like I mentioned in terms of like the – you have to be an AT, a PT, SNC guy, data guy, pitching coach, um, SNC, all these things. Um, at the end of the day, it comes down to communication. And that's something where if we feel like we as a hiring team, so like myself and Nancy are heavily involved there, um, we are looking at the person because with our educational systems that are in play, I'm 100% confident anybody who is driven, motivated, um, and really has good character around the topic will learn all the said information. We can teach anybody that. However, it becomes the application and communicating. And again, also just being able to be in this environment to have tough discussions, to grow, to learn. Um, that's really important. So for me on the hiring process, yes, the prerequisite of like some SNC background, obviously detailed knowledge of the throw. Um, and ultimately working with athletes carries a lot of weight, but I certainly find it that it's more so important to buy into the person. Um, if it's a person who fits the culture, we, we can do a lot with that. How many people reach out to you about wanting to, to coach? Oh, a lot. Um, oh, I would yeah. say, yeah, I would. And we, we utilize a rolling application, so it's pretty much always open. Um, I mean, there's no less than, I'd say three to four applicants a week. Um, so we're, you know, we're getting a couple hundred a year. Um, and so then it's it's sorting through those to see, you know, who the next best fit is. How do you know if someone's a good communicator just by having a conversation and not having seen them coach? Or, or maybe they say, like, yeah, I'm hungry. I have a growth mindset. I'm doing X, Y, and Z. It's like it's – they're a good interviewer, but – are they a good fit? Like, I'm sure that's got to be hard to, to figure out. Yeah, no, it, it is. Um, and, you know, also there are different stages. So like the initial call uh, will always go through me. And then the secondary will be a conversation with Nancy. We'll put you through doing like a, a little bit of a practical, like a mechanical breakdown, taking a, a general test to kind of see your expertise in various fields of knowledge. Um, but to go back to the communication piece uh, and the ability for somebody to coach, the one thing that baseball does have right is the network environment. Um, it's it's really hard to BS somebody for a really long time in baseball because you'll you'll pick up on it pretty quick. Yeah. Um, as as you know, certainly through like doing this podcast, it's like right. 
in baseball, you're always one contact or one connection away from somebody. Like, no doubt about it. Um, yeah. And word travels really fast. And ultimately, the coolest thing is um, if somebody says they're a really good coach, you just ask one of their former players, um, mm-hmm. and you're going to get the you're going to get the truth on that. Um, that is for sure. Uh, I don't know why more people don't do that. It's like, like literally, just ask the players who worked with this guy, played with this guy, uh, and you'll get you'll get an answer. It's a great point. I don't I don't think any organizations really do that a whole lot. Is ask the players like if I'm evaluating a coach. To your point. Isn't that who you want to ask? I mean, and maybe some of the answers are subjective because some players may not want to be pushed or whatnot, but I bet if you asked everybody, you would get the right answer. A hundred percent. That's like, and again, you've seen this. You talk even within pockets of professional athletes. There's every single guy who is, whether this is high school, college, pro ball, everybody has group chats that they speak in. um, And there are always, you know, some sort of reaction to like said coach coordinator, et cetera, being hired. And like, I think that tells you everything you need to know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Last question for you, Tyler is uh, you could give one piece of advice to, to high school pitchers out there. What would it be? And you can't say you need to throw harder. Uh, My advice would be to build, build within your own identity um, and figure out somebody who can, who can continue to push that, um, and really develop you within that as opposed to, you know, always looking for what's next, what's new to reinvent yourself. Um, there are plenty of big leaguers who have very unique characteristics. They have different biomechanical principles and move move oddly, one would say. Um, you've got guys from a data perspective who have funky pitch movements, all these things can work, um, and you're just looking to maximize your own career. You're not looking to to be somebody else. It's good to utilize guys who are similar to you from a comparison standpoint, but never never worth it to you know go completely against kind of who you are as a player. Love it, Tyler. Appreciate you coming on, man. I I hope you get signed soon and and see you in the big leagues pitching. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you having me. We got it again.